Good morning, Central Church. It is good to be with you. We are wrapping up a series this morning that we're calling Amen, where we are looking at the Lord's Prayer right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon. And today, we find ourselves in this last, this last verse. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, as I was thinking about this, I, I remembered a story. And it was one of those stories that you kind of remember, but probably more so you remember because it's been told to you time and time and time again. You know those stories when you're a little bit too young and so your memory is kind of foggy, uh, but you kind of are aware of this story. Uh, it was a Sunday at the church I grew up at. Um, after s- Sunday service, there was a potluck. And what that meant for me is I got to play in the entire building, hide-and-go-seek and tag all over the building. But my brother, my older brother Eric, so he was probably eight or nine at the time, I was probably five or six. My dad had used this gold pocket watch for some illustration in the children's message. And my brother was enamored with this pocket watch. And so he kept walking up to my dad and he would put his hand in my dad's pocket and pull out the pocket watch, open it up, look at it, close it, put it back in the pocket. 30 seconds later, he'd grab it back out and open it back up, look at it, close it, put it back in the pocket. And by the fifth or sixth time he did that, my dad turned to him and said, Eric, you really like that watch, huh? And Eric said, yeah, I really like that watch. And my dad said, well, how about this? Uh, when I die, you can have it. And Eric's eyes got really big. And he kind of just started backing away slowly. And then turned and ran. And my dad's thinking, what have I done? Uh, now my, my, my child is thinking about, there's going to be a day when, when we're not here anymore. When we die. And now he's thinking about the death of his parents and all of these things. And about a minute later, I came screaming around the corner, running as fast as I could. And I run up to him before he can ask me what's going on. I'm out of breath. And I said, Dad, Dad, when you die, can I have the boat? <laughs> the empathy gene took a little while to develop in me. But that was kind of my biggest problem when I was a kid. It was a pretty easy life. I was mostly concerned about making sure I got dibs on the things I wanted after my parents were gone. Pretty easy life. But as you get older, you start to experience and see that life's not always so perfect. Our eyes begin to be exposed to some of the brokenness and the pain and the suffering that's all around us. Maybe for you that looks like experiencing or knowing someone who's walked the journey of cancer or some illness. Maybe, like me, you've known someone over the last two years who has lost their life to COVID. Maybe you are an aging parent or you're you're caring for an aging parent or a grandparent or someone close to you and you're, you're watching this journey unfold where our bodies just aren't doing what they used to do and you're seeing this person and you're thinking and seeing all of this pain and suffering and brokenness. Maybe it's relational. Maybe there's a relationship in your life that seems to be hanging by a string. Maybe it's with a child or a parent or a sibling or a friend or a spouse. And you remember what that relationship was like, but then you look at what it is now and you just feel this pain and the sadness and and there's this, this suffering of mourning what was and what may never be again. Maybe like 
me, I'm sure all of us, have watched the scenes unfolding in Ukraine this last week. We just see this utter pain and suffering and brokenness. What we've seen unfold in Afghanistan over the last few months as Afghan refugees are fleeing for their lives and we look around and we see all this pain and this brokenness and we think to ourselves, God, where are you in the middle of all of this? Where are you? Or the question that I find myself asking more than that is, God, what are you going to do about this? God, what are you going to do about all of this pain and suffering and brokenness? And what does all of this have to do with Matthew 6, this, this verse in Matthew 6? If I can be honest, this, this week was a struggle for me to get to this spot. Sometimes sermons just come and it's like, you don't really have to do much work. And sometimes it's a grind and a struggle. And that was me this week. It wasn't easy. And, and part of the reason was because as I was reading different things, it seems like we have this prayer that's building and building, this powerful prayer, and then it gets to this spot, and it's like, the wind kind of comes out of your sail, and you're like, Jesus, why would you end it here? All of the commentators and the things I was reading, they had a lot to say on on God the Father, and they had a lot to say on on God's kingdom and, and provision and even forgiveness. But then when it got to the spot, it was like most of them just said, oh yeah, and then Jesus ended it this way. And I was like, what am I supposed to do with that? I think part of our problem is our view of temptation. It's not wrong, but we have a very westernized, individualistic view of temptation. We think of temptation as, you you know, you don't do this, you don't say that, you don't go there, you don't look at that. And hear me on this, there is a lot of wisdom and discernment. It can save you a lot of grief and pain uh, when we understand that and we, we have habits and practices uh, that, that know our boundaries and limits and what we should and shouldn't do. But I think in some ways, when we view it entirely in that way, we miss out on, on what Jesus is really trying to communicate here. Because even though most translations have this word temptation, most of them use this word, when we understand the language and what's behind it, we see that the heart of this word is maybe more connected to ideas of trials and testing and suffering. I mean, if you look at the places where this word shows up in the Gospels, I think of, uh, if you flip back just a page to Matthew 4, Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days and then tempted by the devil. Or you flip ahead to the Garden of Gethsemane right before Jesus is arrested and he's in the garden praying with his disciples and we see this word come up again. We recognize that this word isn't so much about some kind of moralism, but connected and lends itself to these ideas of betrayal and and testing and suffering. Suffering. I don't don't know that, that that's something we like talking about. Even at church, I'm not sure that we're great at talking about suffering. You don't get excited on Sunday morning, you know, get logged in on the computer or put your clothes on to come and say, yeah, let's go talk about suffering. It's not a great way to get people excited and motivated and charged up. And yet when we look around, we recognize that we all experience it. We see it. We feel it in the world around us in certain situations. And so I think maybe with this new set of eyes, as we think about this verse and step back a little bit, 
I think maybe we have an opportunity to gain a fresh perspective on what this verse may be leading us towards. Okay? To do that, I want to I flip back into the Old Testament. Uh, we've talked about this before with Matthew. Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, uh, he, he was set on a couple things. One, he wanted to write to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. And that seems like a no-brainer, right? Jesus was the Messiah. But alongside of that, what was also very important to Matthew was not just that Jesus was the Messiah, but that Jesus was the fulfillment of what God's story has been all throughout time. That Jesus is the promised Messiah, the fulfillment uh, of what God has been doing all the way back to Abraham. And so for Matthew, he links these stories. If you read his gospel, more than any other gospel, you'll see these calls to Old Testament passages and stories. That's why in the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, he has that long list of names, that genealogy, that, that if you want to be honest, when you're doing your Bible reading plan, you usually just skip through it, don't you? I know, I do it too sometimes. This boring list of names, but for Matthew, this was an incredibly crucial and important part of the story because this list of names connected Abraham to David to Jesus. These weren't two separate stories for Matthew, but the continuation, one continued unfolding story of God's work with humanity. And so I want to step back and look at a, a story. If, if the Old Testament in 30 seconds, just to fill us up. We've got Abraham, right? We meet Abraham in Genesis. And God makes this problem, a promise with Abraham that through Abraham, his descendants will be a blessing to the entire world. And so God makes this covenant with Israel. But what does Israel do? They keep messing it up. They continue, continue to rebel and make their own decisions and do things their own way. And God tries to, to, to make them a unique people, but they seem to have this bent towards power and domination and violence. They are set on trying to be like everybody else. And so after many generations, after God has liberated them from Egypt and led them through the promised land and delivered them to the promised land, led them through the wilderness and delivered them to the promised land, and they continue to rebel and do things their own way, God finally says, and God allows their, the consequences of their bad decisions, of their rebellion, to reap what they sow. And so we see that these Israelites are conquered by the Babylonians. They're driven into exile. I mean, talk about a people who are suffering. Driven from their homes, everything they know and love has been destroyed. Their temple has been burned. Their, their loved ones have been killed or taken captive. And it seems like all hope is lost. It seems like maybe this is where the story ends for them. I was at a, a, a Good Friday service. One of my favorite services we do here is our Good Friday service. We call it a tenembre service. So we have all these candles right here. And throughout the service, we put out candles and it gets progressively darker and darker. Many years ago, I was at a service, not here, uh, and I was just kind of attending one of these tenembre services. And I started to see this unfold, but there was a little boy kind of sitting right here. And he saw people coming up and putting out the candles, and he thought, well, that looks kind of like, maybe I want to get involved in that. Uh, but there's one candle in the middle. It's called the Christ candle. And you don't actually extinguish that one. At the end of the service, someone takes the Christ candle uh, and walks out, and, and you take it out of it so you're in complete darkness. But you don't actually extinguish the Christ candle. That's very important. This little boy didn't know that. And he kind of thought it was a free-for-all. Like, if you want to put out a candle, come on up and put out a candle. 
And so before his parents could realize what was happening during one of the songs, he just got up, walked right up to the Christ candle, the last candle that's lit, and just goes... And there's pastors sitting on the platform, and they're all freaking out, like, what are we going to do now? Complete and utter darkness. That's what this moment felt like for the Israelites. Complete and utter darkness. Hopelessness. Suffering. And I want to look at a story, and, and story is kind of a stretch. Because if you aren't looking for this, chances are you're going to miss it in this grand scheme of, uh, of Scripture. Because it's so short and it seems so bizarre. But I think it has some important and profound truth for us. It's in the book of 2 Kings. Uh, 2 Kings is a story of how Israel is taken into captivity and, and, and exiled by the Babylonians. But that's not how 2 Kings ends. In the very end, the last four verses, there's this little side story. and We meet this character, Jehoiakim. Who's, who's a king of Judah, and he's been imprisoned in exile. And I, I want to read this with you really quick, and then we're going to talk about it. It's 2 Kings 25, starting at verse 27. It says this, In the year that Owl Murdoch became king of Babylon, he released Judah's king, Jehoiakim, from prison. This happened in the 37th year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, on the 27th day of the 12th month. Owl Murdoch spoke kindly to Jehoiakim, and seated him above the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim took off his prisoner clothes and ate regularly in the king's presence for the rest of his life. At the king's command, a regular food allowance was given to him every day for the rest of his life. Again, in in our Bibles, this is its own section. It's just this little blip at the end of this book, which is mostly about Israel's downfall and destruction. And it seems like this insignificant story. Why why do we need to know this? Jehoiakim is the last living descendant of King David at this time. We talk about that, that line from Abraham to David that ultimately leads us to Jesus. And you want to talk about a people who feel like they're being washed out, like they're hopeless, like this is the very end. This guy... King Jehoiakim is the last living descendant of David. The only hope uh, to make that connection from Abraham to David to Jesus is right here, and he finds himself in prison. And yet somehow, this Babylonian king finds favor with him. And he releases him from prison, and he gives him new clothes, and he gives him a seat at the king's table. And from prison, we see Jehoiakim life restored and, and this, this glimmer of hope. In the midst of all of the darkness and suffering and brokenness that's all around, when it seems like maybe this is it, God is working. God is moving to deliver and make a way. And this is important as we come back to Matthew 6, because Jehoiakim is mentioned in this genealogy that Matthew talks about at the beginning of Matthew. But in Matthew 6, This verse is two parts. It's not just about temptation or trials or suffering. But what's the second part? And deliver us. Deliver us from evil. This is not just about uh, trials and temptations and testing and suffering. But this verse is about a God who delivers and makes a way. 
And so when we pray this prayer, we're not just praying, God, don't let me fall into this. Don't let me experience this. Don't let me go down this. But we are praying and recognizing that we serve a God who delivers and makes a way even in the most dark and bleak and hopeless situations. See, what this story points to is this important truth. This important, important truth. That trials, temptation, suffering, testing can be the very soil where new life springs forth. Suffering can be the very soil where new life springs forth. That our, our salvation doesn't save us from suffering, but in Christ, our suffering is redeemed. That somehow God is making a way, all throughout Scripture we see this, that when things look the most hopeless, the most bleak, the most dark, that somewhere, somehow, God is working to redeem and restore even our suffering. Amen. But what does that mean for us? Does it mean that we should go and and, and seek suffering and trials and temptation and testing? No, of course not. And it doesn't mean that we just need to put on a happy face and act like everything's okay. But what this can offer us is a new perspective, not only on God's activity in the midst of the suffering and trial and temptation and testing, but also the invitation we have to join in on what God is doing. See, for me, this gets back to the idea of formation. Who are we being formed into? Who are the people that we are becoming? Are we being formed into the likeness of Jesus, or are we being formed in some other way? There is no middle ground. Formation is always happening. And so the question is, how are we being formed? And here's the reality. There are some parts of our lives where it can be easy to allow God's formation to come in. Maybe our Sunday mornings, it can be easy. You know, we come to church and it's easy to, to allow God's formation in that spot. Maybe, maybe for you, it's, it, raising kids, it's easy to allow God's help and God's formation in that. Or maybe it's a habit or a practice that you have. Some ways it can be very easy for us to say, yeah, God, take that. Form that. But what about our suffering? What about our trials and our testing and temptation? It's so easy to allow God's spirit to form and work in the midst of of that. And some of you are sitting in this room and you're thinking, but I'm just not experiencing this. This isn't my reality. I'm not experiencing these trials or this suffering or this temptation or this testing. And I think this is where it gets back to what Pastor John talked about a couple weeks ago. Because in the same way that we don't pray, give me my daily bread, but give us our daily bread, It's not lead me or deliver me, but it's lead us and deliver us. That what Jesus teaches us is that in Christ, there is only we. We carry one another's burdens. We lift each other up in prayer. We work alongside of God to the total redemption and restoration of all things. God invites us to be a part of the new life that is breaking through even in the midst of suffering and pain and trials. God is inviting us because that suffering, those trials, that temptation, that testing can be the very soil where new life is breaking through.
I loved growing up, uh, one of my grandparents, uh, they lived in a small town called Kano, Wisconsin. There was a paper mill there, so the entire town smelled bad. That's all I remember. No, but one of the th- my favorite things about going there is they had this really cool house up on a hill uh, on a river. And, and their yard was like this three-tiered yard. So it went forward and then straight down, and then forward and then straight down, and then all the way to the river. And the winter was the best because the river would freeze over and we could go ice skating on it. But because of that hill, we couldn't really sled down that. It wasn't quite safe. But they had a wooden staircase on the side. And that's where we would sled. If there was enough snow that covered the the staircase, we could go down the staircase. And the goal was always to get as close to the river as possible. There was one time, I, I don't know how old she was, but my sister was not old enough for us to send her on this adventure. But we put her at the top of the staircase on a sled. And she was sitting up holding onto the sled and we just gave her a push. And she's flying down the stairs and flying down the hill. And we noticed, my brother and I, it looks like she's heading towards that pine tree. And the closer she gets to it, the more it looks like she's heading to this pine tree. And she's just sitting up. I don't know how old she is. And right before she gets to that pine tree, big branches hanging over, we just see her lay down and right under the pine tree. It was not our brightest moment, but probably not our worst moment. But my grandpa was not happy with us. He was not happy with us. But when I think of my grandparents, both sets of my grandparents, one of them had Alzheimer's. On my mom's side, it was my grandpa who had Alzheimer's. On my dad's side, it was my grandma who had Alzheimer's. And when I think of suffering, pain, trials, many of you know this disease that takes the person that you know and love and they just kind of slowly disappear to the point where they don't even know their closest loved ones anymore. And that's a situation that I watched as a kid and thought, man, that looks pretty dark. That looks pretty bleak, pretty hopeless. And yet, somehow, some way, as I watched my grandpa care for my grandma and as I watched my grandma care for my grandpa, It was like a means of grace for me. As I saw a picture of God's love and care for us, as I saw my grandma and my grandpa care for their spouses to the very end. You could look at that and you say, how can anything good come from that? That suffering, that trial, that, how can anything good come from that? But what I know is that every child and every grandkid got to see this love and care on full display. To see even the most broken, most painful parts of their lives surrendered over to a God who somehow, some way, can bring new life even in the midst of the brokenness. See, this is that new creation. This is that new life that we hold nothing back, but everything is surrendered to a God who can redeem and restore all things, even in the midst of our pain and our brokenness, our suffering, our temptation, and our trials. God is working to redeem and restore all things. And so the question for us today is, are we willing to allow God's Spirit to work that in and through us? That's really what this whole prayer has been about. It's this new creation, this new way of life. 
from top to bottom. It's not about kind of dipping a toe in or, you know, one foot here, one foot here. But this is about complete surrender to the work of God, to being a part of this new creation who God works in and through us to be light and hope and salt to the world around us. And God invites us to be a part of this. It's something God does in and through us, but it's also something that God invites us to say yes to, to respond to, and to live into it.